This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi as-samir alayhi min ash-shaytan ar-rajim. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin wa al-'udwan illa 'ala al-zalimin wa al-'aqibatu lil-muttaqin. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik 'ala 'abdika wa rasulika Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa 'ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. Welcome back to another episode of the firsts and uh, inshallah ta'ala, as we spoke about last week, Al-Arqam, Ibn Abi Al-Arqam, and we said that there is a man, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, a young man who always used to be in the background, but his house became the most famous house in the history of Al-Islam. We now move on to a woman who, subhanAllah, the way that I would describe this woman is that she's a part of everyone's story, almost literally, but at the same time, she kind of disappears. She's in the background of all of these stories, and her story alone, you know, in and of itself, which is a remarkable story, is never given its due right. And obviously, you know, we're going to come across a few of those. And no matter how much we speak about these people, we will never give them the honor that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them and that is deserved to them. But at the same time, um, you know, this is a woman that I'm particularly excited about covering uh, because I want you to take a look at this family tree. And this is pieced together from various biographies, okay? This woman is Lubaba bint Al-Harith ibn Hazan. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with her. She is the wife of Al-Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu and the mother of the famous Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, who of course was the first uh, scholar, the first Habr uh, al-Ummah, the great scholar of Islam, the scholar of this Ummah Abdullah ibn Abbas. But just look at how everything is tied uh, through this woman. And I wanted you to actually be able to see a visual of it to realize that pretty much everyone or many of the people that we speak about uh, are related to her in some capacity. And that is because her father, Al-Harith ibn Hazan, married multiple times, and her mother, Hind bint Auf, also married at least four times. And so let's go through her family tree for a moment here. Uh, through her uh, relationship or with her, uh, with her relationship to her sisters, she becomes the sister-in-law of the Prophet ﷺ twice. So first you have Maymuna bint Al-Harith radiallahu ta'ala anha, the last wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, who was her full sister, who married the Prophet sallallahu only after he was able to come back to Mecca after having spent years away due to the persecution. So she is the sister of Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha, the full sister of Maymuna radiallahu anha, and the sister-in-law of the Prophet sallallahu through that route. Her half-sister is Zainab bint Khuzayma radiallahu ta'ala anha, who is her half-sister through her mother. So Zainab bint Khuzayma is the daughter of Hind bint Auf and uh, was the only other wife of the Prophet to pass away in his lifetime other than Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. So Zainab bint Khuzayma, uh, may Allah be pleased with her, Ummul Masakin, the mother of the poor, known for her, uh, her charity, known for her generosity. Uh, she passed away uh, only a few months after being married to the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. This is the half-sister of Lubaba radiallahu ta'ala anha. So she's the Prophet sister-in-law twice, as well as, of course, uh, being married to the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, al-Abbas. And then you have Asma bint Umais and Salma bint Umais. Asma bint Umais is her half-sister, again through her mother, through Hind bint Auf. And Asma bint Umais is someone we will have a whole episode to because she was married to Ja'far, Abu Bakr, and Ali. May Allah be pleased with them all. 
uh, subhanallah. So this was, a, this was a woman that married uh, three of the greatest people to walk the face of the earth. Um, and of course was uh, widowed uh, three times in, in, in the process. Her sister, Salma bint Umais, also the half-sister of Lubaba, uh, may Allah be pleased with her, was the wife of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And then after Hamza was martyred, married to Shaddad ibn al-Had radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So married to two great companions as well. So uh, before I go any further, the Prophet Sallallahu would refer to Lubaba, Maymuna, Asma, and Salma as Al-Akhawat Al-Mu'minat, the faithful sisters. So when you hear the Prophet Sallallahu actually say that name, Al-Akhawat Al-Mu'minat, the faithful sisters, he's talking about those four, may Allah be pleased with them, because of how early they came into Islam and the support that they gave to the Prophet Sallallahu and the way that they believed in Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So he referred to them as a group, those four, Al-Akhawat, Al-Mu'minat, the believing sisters, the faithful sisters. And then you have Lubaba As-Sughra, the younger sister of Lubaba uh, anha, And this is the mother of Khalid ibn al-Walid anhu. So she's also the aunt of Khalid uh, anhu. And of course, as we mentioned, her husband Al-Abbas, her children, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Al-Fadl ibn Abbas, Ubaidullah ibn Abbas, Quthum ibn Abbas, all of them her children and more. And then lastly, uh, a beautiful story which we'll speak about inshallah ta'ala towards the end. Al-Husayn ibn Ali uh, radiallahu ta'ala anhumah, the great um, imam, the, the, the person who was so beloved to the Prophet sallallahu one of the most beloved people in the world to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi was her son through breastfeeding, which we'll speak about inshallah ta'ala. So this is why some of the scholars say that this is uh, the most noble mother-in-law in the history of Islam, the most noble old person, elderly person, Akram Ajuz. Uh, Islam, because everything seems to connect through this woman. May Allah subhanahu wa taala be pleased with her, and um, you know she's she's literally the the sister-in-law or the in-law of all of the Khulafa al-Rashidin in some capacity, except for Uthman radiAllahu taala anhu. But I'm sure that if you put this all together, you can find a link to Uthman radiAllahu taala anhu as well. So what's her story, right? I mean, this is the family tree and this is the woman that's a part of everybody else's story and you, and, and you can just pull her name out of every biography uh, through some sort of relationship. But what's her story? Uh, she's from a tribe by the name of Banu Hilal. Okay, so she's actually Lubaba al-Hilaliya uh, and she's referred to in that way. And Banu Hilal was a tribe that was particularly known for its ability to deal with the extreme circumstances of the desert. So they were a Bedouin tribe. Uh, they were known for their ability to live uh, under extreme conditions. They, uh, they were experts in uh, agriculture. Uh, so they were, they were amongst those that would grow crops in difficult circumstances. They would, uh, uh, you know, take care of people's uh, cattle and sheep and their camels. So they were known to be, uh, you know, good shepherds as well. Uh, people would send out their children to live with Banu Hilal so that they could learn how to deal with rough circumstances. So if you wanted your child to learn the life of a Bedouin, to learn how to deal with difficult circumstances, you sent them to be amongst Banu Hilal. And some of the scholars say that's how Khalid anhu actually learned the skill set that he learned, the nephew of Lubaba. Because Khalid, uh, you know, grew up amongst Banu Hilal, and that's something that uh, you put on your resume at the time, right? That you grew up and you were raised amongst uh, Banu Hilal because they knew how to deal with the difficulties of the desert. So Lubaba, radiallahu ta'ala anha, bint al-Harith, 
She comes out of this reality and she has the characteristics of Banu Hilal. She is a tough, strong woman. A woman who uh, we'll see throughout actually her biography uh, was a courageous woman, was a fearless woman, was a woman with a presence that would instill fear even in the hearts of people like Abu Lahab, right? Because of the way that she carried herself radiallahu ta'ala anha, she is the great auntie uh, of the Muslim community. Okay, truly, that's the best way to, to describe her, subhanAllah, when you talk about her relationship, not just to the Prophet Sallallahu but to everyone else that we mentioned here, she is the aunt of the Muslim community, right? She's, uh, she holds a level of respect and izzah, uh, and honor amongst the Muslims that the Prophet Sallallahu fully recognized. But above all of that, uh, Umm Al-Fadl, who of course uh, I should mention Al-Fadl being her oldest child, uh, her nickname is Umm Al-Fadl. Uh, Umm Al-Fadl Lubaba uh, has a distinction that is higher than all of these things that are represented through these family ties. And that is that she took pride in being the first woman to convert to Islam after Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. She even says that she embraced Islam on the same day as Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. Now realize again, she's an aunt of the Prophet sallallahu through marriage, right? She's married to Al-Abbas and Al-Abbas radiallahu anhu was close to the Prophet sallallahu and also not too much older than the Prophet sallallahu So had a relationship with the Prophet sallallahu that was both one of an uncle and a nephew and also one that was brotherly. Um, but as soon as she heard of Islam, as soon as she heard through the family who was first notified that the Prophet Sallallahu had gone through this experience, she knew the Prophet Sallallahu's character. She loved the Prophet Sallallahu She admired the Prophet Sallallahu She immediately went to the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and embraced Islam. And, uh, she, and you know, it's, as it's said in, in uh, Seer Alam al-Nubula, Imam al-Dhahabi rahimahullah uh, collects that no one, it was said that no one accepted Islam from the women before her except uh, Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. And uh, Ibn Hajar rahimahullah, he says that the only one that could have possibly uh, accepted Islam before her might have been Fatima bint al-Khattab, the sister of Umar. May Allah be pleased with them all. So she immediately goes to the house of the Prophet Wasallam to embrace Islam and she will support the Prophet Wasallam in his mission from the very start. She also had a very close relationship to Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. So she, uh, she would speak of Khadija radiallahu anha extremely highly and because of her relationship to Khadija and then her relationship to the Prophet ﷺ through her husband Al-Abbas, uh, she was one of those who used to go and sit with the Prophet ﷺ both in Dar al-Arqam as well as in his own house, right? So imagine in that home where the family of the Prophet ﷺ, some of them are embracing Islam, uh, you know, whether it's the children or, or the women or some of the men are embracing Islam and the community is growing around the Prophet ﷺ. Lubaba was one of those who was distinguished to go and learn Islam from the Prophet ﷺ, from his house, as well as in Dar al-Arqam. And that is not something that many people had the ability to do, especially in Mecca. But being amongst Banu Hashim and being uh, having that closeness to the Prophet ﷺ, she took advantage of that. And she's the first of Al-Akhawat, Al-Mu'minat, the faithful sisters that the Prophet Sallallahu uh, used to refer to. Ibn Abbas Anhu, he speaks about this, Abdullah ibn Abbas, he speaks about this, this reality in, uh, in Mecca. He says that, 
you know, as, as long as he remembered, his mother was openly decra- declaring her Islam and always in a state of salah. So he said, "Kuntu ana wa ummi min al-mustadafin min al-nisa'i wal-wildan." That I and my mother were from the mustadafin. We were considered amongst the weak in Mecca, who embraced Islam and who suffered as a result of embracing Islam. Through Lubaba radiAllahu taala anha um al-fadl, uh, Abu Rafa' who was uh, the, uh, the, the uh, servant of Al-Abbas عنه, Abu Rafi', the freed slave of Al-Abbas, also embraced Islam and began to practice secretly. So Lubaba was open about her Islam. Abu Rafi', who was the freed slave of Al-Abbas عنه, practiced Islam secretly. And of course, Al-Abbas himself, radiAllahu ta'ala anhu, you know, th- there's a difference of opinion as to when he embraced Islam. When did he embrace Islam privately? When did he publicly embrace Islam? Or at what point does he embrace his, uh, his, his religion, the religion of his nephew, and become who he became, radiallahu ta'ala anhu? But it definitely was not as early as Lubaba. She used to make dua for Al-Abbas to come to Islam, and she used to make dua for him to abandon riba So she had a purity in that she hated the practice of usury. And this is something that we find from these noble people that their fitrah aligned with what was to come of revelation, their natural disposition, their natural inclination already aligned with what was to come through revelation. And riba, which really took the, the, the form of late fees and uh, burdening people in debt through late fees more than anything else in Mecca, riba was something that she hated and riba was something that Al-Abbas was famous for. And that's why you see when the Prophet ﷺ abolishes the riba, uh, interest in usury. He particularly says those that owe it to Al-Abbas are, are forgiven for their uh, their interest and their usury. Why? Because Al-Abbas عنه, was a rich merchant and he used to give out loans. He used to uh, he, he used to have a lot of debt that was owed to him. So she would make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide her husband Al-Abbas both to come to Islam and also to abandon riba even though riba would not be forbidden for years. Uh, after she would uh, pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that. She would prompt Al-Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu to embrace the religion of his nephew. Now, I, I want to give you some context to this because it's important to understand the home dynamics here. What would make it easier, or not easier, because I don't want to detract from her Islam, but what makes Lubaba radiallahu ta'ala anha so you know, uh, open to Islam right away? And Al-Abbas uh, radiallahu ta'ala anhu so closed off initially Al-Abbas wanted to follow in the mold of Abu Talib. And so Abu Talib, of course, protected the Prophet ﷺ, took care of the Prophet ﷺ, served in the best way that an uncle could, right? Gave his life uh, protecting the Prophet ﷺ once revelation came to him, right? The, the rest of the life of Abu Talib is shielding the Prophet ﷺ from harm. And Al-Abbas, of course, picked up the reins of that responsibility when Abu Talib passed away. And that's why Al-Abbas is the one who took the Prophet to take bay'ah, uh, to take the pledge of the people of Medina, of the Ansar, right? Al-Abbas was the representative. He was the protector of the Prophet But Al-Abbas was, was living in the mold of Abu Talib and that he wanted to be the protective uncle that was still loyal to his tribe. Okay, so he's the Hashimi before anything else, the Qurashi, the Hashimi before anything else, the Hashimite who loves his nephew and takes care of his nephew, not out of feeling that his nephew is a prophet of Allah or, or not necessarily 
uh, protecting him for that reason, but protecting him because that's what good uncles and good fathers do at that time. This is a, a tribal society. And so I'm going to be noble like my older brother Abu Talib and take care of the Prophet ﷺ and almost express an indifference to his religion more than anything else, right? And that's, you know, Abu Talib did not used to speak against the religion of the Prophet ﷺ, right? But it was almost with an indifference. Like, I don't care what his religion is, he's my nephew and I'm going to take care of him. So while Lubaba is becoming more and more, um, you know, uh, uh, convicted in her faith, uh, Al-Abbas is holding back for some time uh, from the religion of Islam. And this includes during the boycott, uh, which was of course the most difficult uh, period uh, in the life of the tribe at least, of Banu Hashim, a difficult time for the Prophet the effects of which you know, uh, Abu Talib would, would, of course, his death would be induced. Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha would die as well due to the extreme circumstances, the hardships of the boycott that would be placed on the Prophet and of course, Banu Hashim and Banu Muttalib. And subhanAllah, it was during this boycott that you found that the morale of the community was also you know, taking a major hit. They've been through persecution. They've been through all sorts of hardship. They've seen the likes of Sumayya radiallahu anha killed. They have, you know, they have people that have escaped persecution to go to Abyssinia. And now the cruelty of uh, boycotting this tribe so that they could uh, starve to death, so that they die you know, uh, away from the people, starve to death. They don't have basic goods. They die in, you know, while being stigmatized in that society. Of course, and all of that pain is then thrust on the Prophet ﷺ that you did this to your people, right? If you renounce your religion, then your people don't have to go through this anymore. This was a difficult time in the life of the Prophet ﷺ and everyone from the family of the Prophet ﷺ had to go through this boycott whether they accepted Islam or not. So the entirety of his tribe alayhi salatu is, uh, is suffering the consequences of this boycott. And it was here that Lubaba radiallahu ta'ala anha, Umm al-Fadl, may Allah be pleased with her, who was so close to the Prophet so close to Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha, watching Khadija radiallahu anha die as a result of the boycott, going through what was happening. It was here that Lubaba radiallahu ta'ala anha became pregnant with a child. And in the midst of the most difficult days of the Prophet's life, alayhi salatu wasalam, it was here during the boycott actually that Umm al-Fadl gave birth to Abdullah ibn Abbas ta'ala So Abdullah Habrul Ummah, the scholar of this Ummah was born in the boycott, okay? During the boycott, during the most difficult days of the Prophet life. Some of the scholars say that that's you know, that is one of the reasons why the Prophet ﷺ loved him so much. You know, when you're in difficult circumstances and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends you a blessing like that, then you enjoy that blessing, you appreciate that blessing that much more. And so the Prophet ﷺ, you know, of course, was extremely sad, um, you know, and distressed by the situation of the boycott. But when he would see Abdullah ibn Abbas, he would, you know, be overjoyed, he'd play with him, he loved him so much because... He came at a certain time as well. And subhanAllah, when he was born, uh, Lubaba asked for Abdullah to be brought to the Prophet ﷺ to do the tahniq, which is to take the date 
and to rub it on the roof of your mouth and then the roof of the, the child's mouth. And they didn't have any dates. SubhanAllah. So this was a, a tahnik, but there was no tamr. There was no dates in the time of the boycott. So the Prophet ﷺ, he took saliva from his mouth and he put it in the mouth of Abdullah without anything but his own saliva mixing with the, the, the saliva of Abdullah ibn Abbas And Mujahid rahimahullah said, uh, Abdullah is the only child with that distinction. SubhanAllah, who would grow up to become such an eloquent scholar, person who the Prophet ﷺ would hold and say, Allahumma faqihu fiddin wa allimhu ta'wil. Uh, you know, ask Allah to grant him uh, knowledge and wisdom and understanding of the religion and proper interpretation. All of these things that the Prophet ﷺ would make dua for Abdullah. And that's how the relationship starts between the Prophet ﷺ and Abdullah ibn Abbas عنهumah, who would always be a light for this ummah. Okay, so subhanAllah, that's where he was born. And, you know, uh, of course, the years of Mecca went by. The Prophet ﷺ makes hijrah. And when the Prophet ﷺ makes hijrah, Al-Abbas stays behind with his family in Mecca. So at this point, Al-Abbas has not embraced Islam, at least publicly. Okay, for sure not publicly. He may have embraced it privately. And then the Battle of Badr comes. So Lubaba is experiencing now, the, she's experienced the death of Khadija anha. She's experiencing the separation from um, you know, her, her nephew and uh, the Prophet Sallallahu who of course was so beloved to her because of who he was Alayhi Salatu Wasalam. And you know, now they're in Mecca and the Battle of Badr, uh, you know, breaks out. And Al-Abbas Radiallahu Ta'ala Anhu went out with the Mushrikeen of Mecca. He went out with the disbelievers of Mecca, even though he was the one who protected the Prophet Sallallahu when the Prophet Sallallahu took the bay'ah, when he took the allegiance from the pledge from the people of Medina, Al-Abbas still had to go out with the noble ones of Mecca to, uh, you know, to this fight of the Battle of Badr. And the Prophet وسلم, he said before the, uh, the fight, before Badr actually would even take place, he said that there's some people from Mecca, أُخْرِجُوا كَرْهًا they, They've been brought out by force. They have no interest whatsoever in fighting us. So if you see them, uh, don't kill them. Instead, just, just you know, capture them and bring them to the prisoners, right? But do not kill them because they're not here to kill you. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned uh, Abu al-Bukhturi, Ibn Hisham, and Al-Abbas. So he said, these two men are not interested in fighting us. They're not there to kill us, but they were forced by their people uh, to go out. So Al-Abbas anhu. Surely, you know, he came out to the Battle of Badr and he did not raise his hand one time against the Muslims. He was captured uh, quickly, brought to the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ had to still treat him in the same way that everyone else's relatives were being treated. Uh, he, he could not, والسلام, show favoritism to his uncle, even though he knew his uncle's heart was different. And so the Prophet ﷺ, if he loosened the uh, you know, the, the, the chains on Al-Abbas uh, the cuffs on Al-Abbas, he said, loosen them for everyone, right? It's not just Al-Abbas everyone has to have it loosened them. And when the Prophet ﷺ collects ransom, of course, lets people leave. Uh, he cannot show favoritism to his uncle because he loves his uncle. And so when he goes to his uncle, 
he tells his uncle to, to ransom himself. Just, you know, you're a rich man, ransom yourself. So he, you know, Al-Abbas tells the Prophet ﷺ, I don't have that kind of money. The Prophet ﷺ says, uh, فَأَيْنَ الْمَالُ الَّذِي دَفَنْتَهُ أَنْتَ وَأُمُ الْفَضْلِ Where is the money that you and your, and your wife, Umm al-Fadl, hid away, you stored away? And you said to her, if I'm killed in this battle, then save this for Al-Fadl, Abdullah, and Quthum. So the Prophet ﷺ is telling Al-Abbas about a conversation that he had with Lubaba, Umm al-Fadl, in Mecca. And there's no way that the Prophet ﷺ would know about that conversation. So Al-Abbas says, Wallahi, Ya Rasulullah, I know that you are Allah's messenger because this is not a thing that anyone except for Umm al-Fadl and myself knew. Just me and Lubaba had this conversation. There is no way that you would have known about this had you not been a messenger of Allah. So he told the Prophet وسلم, um, to, uh, you know, if he could count the 20 uh, uqiya, uh, which was a weight that he took from him in the battle, the Prophet وسلم, said, I can't because that's the spoils of war. So what was taken in the battle itself doesn't count. And that's when Al-Abbas ransomed himself with a promise with the money that he had hid away with Umm al-Fadl. And that's when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually revealed uh, verse 70, uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, in uh, surah number 8, Ya rahim. That, O Prophet of Allah, say to the captives that are in your hands, if Allah knows of any good in your hearts, then He will give you something better than what was taken from you, and He will forgive you. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is most forgiving, most merciful. So in Surah Al-Anfal, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying to the Prophet to say to him that uh, this will come back to you anyway, if you are a believer, right? So if you have iman, if you have faith in your heart, then anything that you gave to ransom yourself, know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you more than what was taken from you. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive you as well. And Allah is all forgiving, uh, most merciful, most forgiving, most merciful. So let's get back to Umm al-Fadl, okay, Lubaba. This, is, this happens with Al-Abbas. He's out in Badr and um, you know he went out forced to stand on the other side of his nephew والسلام, never intended to hurt him. He would never hurt the Prophet or hurt the Muslims and even was willing to be killed instead of kill or hurt on that day. But you know, before Al-Abbas would get back to uh, Mecca, those that were not taken prisoners made it back. Okay, so Abu Sufyan and 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 uh, and, and and some of those uh, that fought that did not die in Badr were able, of course, to flee from Badr and make it back to Mecca before the prisoners would make it back. So Abu Rafi', who we said was the freed slave of Al Abbas, he narrates this incident. He says, "I was sitting." And uh, Umm Lubaba was sitting and Abu Lahab, Abu Lahab, none other than Abu Lahab, uh, was, was pacing around the room. Okay, so imagine the scene. And he, uh, as he paces around the room waiting for news of what happened at Badr, he sits down and he says, he put his back on my back. I mean, you can just imagine the scene. Umm al-Fadl is sitting in the room. Abu Rafi' is sitting there. And Abu Lahab, uh, you know, sits down and puts his back to the back of Abu Rafi', waiting for uh, someone to come back from Badr and to give the news. Then he says, Abu Sufyan approached. So Abu Lahab stood up, uh, you know, 
obviously excited, wanting to know the news, anxious to know the news. And he said, Mal khabar? He said, what happened? What happened to Abu Sufyan? Give me the news. What happened in the Battle of Badr? So Abu Sufyan, he said, you know, we went to fight them and we found that they were a people that were small in number, but the, the quantity of those people did not match their courage. They killed us however they wanted to kill us. They captured us however they wanted to capture us, meaning we were completely overmatched by the Muslims, even though they were much smaller in number. And he said, and they had these huge men alongside of them that were fighting, and we couldn't do anything to them. So they would strike us, but we couldn't strike them. So Abu Rafa, he got excited, obviously, because he's a Muslim. And, you know, he was a vulnerable Muslim. No one was going to touch Lubaba because of who she was. Uh, but Abu Rafa, uh, he saw this and he stood up and he started to say, Tilka wallahi hiya al-malaika, tilka wallahi hiya al-malaika. I said, I swear by Allah, that's the angels, that's the angels. You fought the angels, you fought the angels. And he said that out of such excitement that Abu Lahab uh, punched him and he said, Abu Lahab got on top of me and he started to beat me to a bloody pulp. So the blood started to f flow from Abu Rafi' as Abu Lahab was punching him. And, uh, you know, he, he said he almost died. Abu Lahab was a huge man. And he was, you know, uh, hitting him with all of his might, so angry just having heard the news of what happened in Badr. And at the same time, finding out Abu Rafi' uh, had the nerve to celebrate the victory of the Muslims over uh, Quraysh on that day. So what does Lubaba do? This woman, uh, Lubaba anha, she grabs a tent pole and she takes the tent pole and she, uh, she cracks Abu Lahab uh, right, in, right on his head, in his face with that pole. And Abu Lahab's head completely splits open and the blood starts to flow from Abu Lahab's skull. And she stands on top of Abu Lahab and she says, Do you think you're stronger than him, O Abu Lahab? Are you taking advantage of him just because his Sayyid is gone? You think Al-Abbas is gone so you could do whatever you want to Abu Rafi'? He's not yours. You don't get to treat him like this. And she hit him so hard with the pole that Abu Lahab couldn't get up. And the blood was flowing from his head. And Instead, subhanAllah, just imagine this scene, right? This is Tabat Yada Abi Lahab bin Watab, the only enemy of the Prophet whose punishment is, I mean, who's named alongside his punishment in the Quran. And this woman is the one that sends him to hell in that sense, right? Who pops him upside the head, who has the strength and the courage to hit him upside the head with a pole. And Abu Lahab couldn't do anything about it. And because of the severity of the crack in his head, uh, you know, he immediately had to get treated. And subhanAllah, he died just a few days after that. So if you want to know the story of Abu Lahab, who Allah Azza wa tells us about his punishment, the one who stood up in front of the Prophet Sallallahu at Safa and, uh, and said, Muhammad alayhi salatu wassalam, said to the Prophet Sallallahu those horrible words, may you perish. And Allah responded to Abu Lahab that way, the one who would strike him and kill him and put, you know, uh, send him to that next phase of his existence, which we know is a miserable existence because of what Allah has told us is none other than this woman, Lubaba Um Al Fadl radiallahu ta'ala anha. So you're starting to see the Hilaliyah come out in her radiallahu ta'ala anha. This is not a woman who was afraid of anyone or anything. This was a noble woman that carried herself in, in such a powerful way. Uh, Al Abbas, of course, came back. 
and she continues to prompt Al Abbas عنه, to embrace Islam. And as we said, we don't know when exactly Al Abbas embraced Islam. Imagine this household that includes the child, Abdullah ibn Abbas, that family that's so beloved to the Prophet, but they're held back in Mecca because they never actually uh, formally, or Al Abbas never formally embraced Islam. Uh, when did Al Abbas embrace Islam? Almost you know, two decades after his wife, he finally publicly embraces Islam after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, shortly before Fatah Mecca. So not long before the conquest of Mecca, Al-Abbas embraces Islam and uh, you know, moves along with his family to Medina to live with the Prophet ﷺ for the, the last three years of his life. So I want to give this some context. The Prophet ﷺ married Maymuna anha. As, uh, you know, as he was coming to Mecca for the first time, and this was one of the, uh, one of the blessings, the gifts of Maymuna and who she was. And Al-Abbas was the one who married Maymuna, his sister-in-law, the sister of Lubaba, Umm al-Fadl, to the Prophet After the Prophet married Maymuna anha, they all moved back to Medina. Okay, so Maymuna obviously is a wife of the Prophet Al-Abbas finally is able to settle in Al-Madinah and Umm Al-Fadl, Lubaba, may Allah be pleased with her and all of her children are able to settle in Medina. We know what's going to happen with Abdullah ibn Abbas. For the next three years, you're going to have this young man from the age of 10 to 13 shadow the Prophet wherever he goes and whatever he does, right? So for the next three years, Lubaba will send off her son and her son will stay by the side of the Prophet ﷺ through everything. And so that's why you have uh, the narration of the Prophet ﷺ riding with Abdullah ibn Abbas on the back of his riding animal and speaking to him and saying, Ya Ghulam, inni wa'alimuka karimat. Oh young man, let me teach you some words. Ihfadullah, yahfadhk, ihfadullah, tajidhu tujahak. Until the end of the uh, very famous hadith, be mindful of Allah and Allah will protect you. Uh, be mindful of Allah and you will find him in front of you until the end of the hadith. So you start to find this connection, this, this uh, beautiful connection that develops between Abdullah, her son, and the Prophet ﷺ in those three years. You also have uh, you know, uh, a, a person, a young man, who asks permission to sleep in the house of the Prophet ﷺ on the night that his aunt, radiallahu ta'ala anha, Maymuna, is with the Prophet ﷺ. You have Abdullah, her son, who will go and sleep um, at the feet of the Prophet ﷺ and Maymuna anha, and will carefully observe the Prophet ﷺ's Qiyamul Layl, his nighttime habits, to narrate it, it to us and to teach us what the Prophet ﷺ, uh, did with his Qiyamul Layl and how he woke up for his Qiyamul Layl. You have the young man that became the wudu of the Prophet ﷺ. He would fetch the water for the Prophet ﷺ. So when the Prophet ﷺ would intend to make wudu, he'd already find that the water has been prepared for him. He'd say, who did it? Abdullah did it. And the Prophet ﷺ would hold him and make dua for him. So this is the son of Lubaba radiallahu ta'ala anha. And what, what he serves, the role that he will play in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And obviously the mother, the wonderful mother, the aunt who is there, uh, Lubaba, Umm al-Fadl radiallahu ta'ala anha. She used to visit the Prophet ﷺ frequently in Medina, just as she did in Mecca. And obviously there's a lot of time to catch up on. And uh, her sister Maymuna is now married to the Prophet ﷺ. And she also 
did Hajj with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So Hajjatul Wada', which was the farewell Hajj of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Maymuna radhi Allahu ta'ala anha, I'm sorry, Umm al-Fadl radhi accompanied the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And this is this is a very important point to understand the blessing of this family. Just like you have the narration of Abdullah on the back of the animal with the Prophet ﷺ, and then narrating the Qiyam of the Prophet ﷺ, most of the narrations or a large number of the narrations of the Prophet's Hajj ﷺ come from Al-Fadl, uh, who was riding also on the back of the animal with the Prophet ﷺ throughout the Hajj. So throughout the Hajj, the Prophet ﷺ kept Al-Fadl with him, and so we have all of these narrations about the one Hajj that the Prophet ﷺ did in Islam through Al-Fadl, just as we have all of these narrations through Abdullah, both of them raised by this magnificent woman, uh, Umm Al-Fadl, uh, Lubaba radiallahu ta'ala anha. You have a famous incident that happened in Hajj that, uh, you know, that Umm Al-Fadl is directly behind. And you know, subhanAllah, if, you, if you've ever been to Hajj, you know that uh, the heat can sometimes really, really become a burden. And I want you to imagine being in Arafah and under the hot sun of Arafah and not knowing whether you should be fasting or not. So in Medina, they, they started fasting Arafah well before, right? I mean, they've been fasting Arafah now for seven, eight years before the Prophet Sallallahu Hajj. And now they're making Hajj with the Prophet ﷺ, and this is the first Hajj of the Prophet ﷺ with them. And they notice that the Prophet ﷺ has not eaten or drink, drank anything, and that he's just making dua, he's exerting himself in dua. He put his hands up والسلام, after salah, and he continued with his hands up. Never once do his hands come down. And so the Sahaba are you know, coming around the Prophet ﷺ, they don't want to interrupt his du'a. Look at the adab that they have, the manners that they have with the Messenger They don't want to interrupt him and ask the Prophet should we be fasting or not? And at the same time, they're getting dehydrated, it's hot. They don't know if they can break their fast or not. Umm al-Fadl, Lubaba, may Allah be pleased with her, she sees the scene happening. And so she takes a, 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 you know, she takes a glass of milk Laban, literally, and she hands it to the Prophet ﷺ so that there could be an intervention without there having to be an intervention. If the Prophet ﷺ turned it away, then obviously they know they're supposed to be fasting. And this was after Asr. So they've already spent hours wondering if they should be fasting on the day of Arafah or not. When Umm al-Fadl hands him the glass, the Prophet ﷺ knows exactly what is happening. So the Prophet ﷺ, he raises his, uh, his glass to the sky and then he drinks from it <laughs> And as soon as he did that, everyone starts to take a drink because they knew now that they didn't have to fast on the day of Arafah if they were actually in Arafah. And that was the wisdom and the participation of Umm al-Fadl as well, uh, who, who had that vision, who, who understood uh, what was happening and saw a way and enjoyed a closeness to the Prophet ﷺ to get the Sahaba out of that bind. The last thing that I'll mention here is the beautiful story behind her connection to Al Hussein ibn Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhumah, the beloved one of the Prophet ﷺ. And so if you look back at this map, you end up now with this one connection, Al Hussein radiallahu ta'ala anhu. How is it that she's able to? nourish al-Husayn radiallahu ta'ala anhu. 
Ibn Sa'ad narrates this, and this is narrated in other places as well, that uh, she had a dream one night and she told the Prophet the dream the next day. And this was shortly, this is right after they moved to Al-Madina. She told the Prophet Ya Rasulullah, I had an interesting dream. She said, I had a dream that a part of your flesh was in my home. It was an interesting dream, right? So a part of the Prophet was in my house, but not the whole of the Prophet And so when she said that to the Prophet she didn't know what to make of that. She said, Fatima anha, is going to give birth to a child and you are going to give birth to a child and you will breastfeed your child as well as the child of Fatima. And who was the child? Al-Husayn So it was a bushra, a glad tidings that she would uh, breastfeed um, a child uh, from Fatima radiallahu anha. And at that point, actually, Qutum was already uh, was born before Al-Husayn radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So you will breastfeed a child along with Qutum, your child. So this was a late birth in the life of Umm al-Fadr, right? This was not an expected birth. It was a late birth. But subhanAllah, she had flowing uh, milk at this point. And you also just notice that the way the Prophet spoke uh, you know, of Al-Husayn radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and you're going to see, uh, you know, an incident that comes out of this as well. But, you know, just the dream that a piece of the Prophet sallallahu was in the house of Umm al-Fadl. And the Prophet sallallahu said, Husayn radiallahu anhu is from me, right? Like Husayn is a piece of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, radiallahu anhu alayhi wa sallam. I mean, it shows you the love the Prophet sallallahu had for this family, which we spoke about when we talked about Ali and Fatima and their, and their, and their children. May Allah be pleased with them all. So, the dream came true. Fatima radiallahu anha gave birth to Al-Husayn and Umm Al-Fadl was, uh, was the mother of Al-Husayn through breastfeeding. She would nurse Al-Husayn radiallahu ta'ala anhu uh, to assist uh, Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha uh, in her task of being a young mother. And one, one day, uh, she is carrying Al-Husayn. So just imagine this beautiful scene, put yourself in Medina. She's carrying Al-Husayn. And of course, when the Prophet used to see Al-Husayn, the Prophet would be so excited, right? You saw Al-Hassan and Al-Husayn, the Prophet would immediately become grandpa, right? I mean, he'll get down from the minbar, he'll sit them on his, his lap, he'll, they'll climb his back in sujood. Uh, the Prophet would, would run to them, they would run to him, he would hold them, he would always be seen carrying them, he would kiss them, he would laugh with them. There was a love that the Prophet ﷺ had for them that was very special, right? So imagine the scene, here comes Umm al-Fadl, she's carrying young Hussein radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and the Prophet ﷺ sees her, uh, sees her and sees him and starts to cuddle uh, al-Husayn, starts to play with him, starts to throw him, and then guess what? Al-Husayn urinates all over the Prophet ﷺ. <laughs> this is an actual story, right? Al-Husayn radiallahu anhu urinates on the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the Prophet ﷺ, uh, you know, uh, tells Umm al-Fadl to, to hold him while he could clean that urine. And Umm al-Fadl, she, uh, she spanks Al-Husayn radiallahu ta'ala anhu for, for doing that to the Prophet sallallahu for urinating on the Prophet sallallahu And the Prophet sallallahu uh, says to her, because when she, when she, she, she spanked Hussein radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he started to cry. The, the baby started to cry. The Prophet sallallahu actually says to her, subhanAllah, he says to her, you've hurt me with my son, right? You made my son cry and you've hurt me by hurting my son. May Allah have mercy on you. SubhanAllah, 
This is what the Prophet is saying about Al Hussein with just this tap, right? Like just for him crying as a baby in a very natural um, you know, incident, right? And so then what then, subhanAllah, of those who murdered Al Hussein, right? And this is something that we have to claim. It's a part of our history. It's something we have to hold in our hearts as well, right? And how hurt the Prophet would be by that, as Ibn al Jawzi makes a connection uh, to this as well. So, you know, she, she uh, lightly, she spanks Al-Husayn, the Prophet ﷺ says, uh, You know, you hurt me by hurting him. You shouldn't have done that. It's okay. And the Prophet ﷺ gives the, the hukum, the ruling, that uh, when a boy who is exclusively breastfed uh, urinates, then you can, sprinkle, uh, you can sprinkle the area of the water and that there's a distinction between the urine of the baby boy and the urine of the baby girl. And some of the ulama, they talked about wisdoms of that. Um, you know, that there is a loosening of the restrictions when it comes to the urine of the baby boy uh, as opposed to the baby girl, as long as the baby boy is not eating solids yet. And I'm not going to get into the thick of baby urine here, all right, just to understand the context of this. But, um, you know, uh, appreciating the story of this, that this was the closeness that Lubaba, Umm al-Fadl, radiallahu ta'ala anha, had to the Prophet and his family, right? Literally, the 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 uh, the mother of Al Hussein uh, through breastfeeding, and this is where you find that narration that becomes a, a famous narration to be used in the books of fiqh uh, is through this incident between Umm Al Fadl and the Prophet and his beloved Hussein uh, So this was the the way that she lives around him. Other than that. What we have uh, narrated about her and narrated through her. She narrated about 30 ahadith from the Prophet. ﷺ, and this is collected through, of course, her son Abdullah ibn Abbas, through Anas ibn Malik, through Umair, uh, through some of those famous companions. But there's really only one hadith, which is the famous hadith, which is the hadith we just mentioned. SubhanAllah, that incident between Umm al Fadl and Hussein and the Prophet. ﷺ, which shows her closeness to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This woman lived radiallahu ta'ala anhu um al-fadl until the khilaf of Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu and she died in the khilaf of Uthman radiallahu anhu and was prayed upon and buried in al-baqir. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with her and have mercy upon her and reward her for all of the support she gave to our beloved messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam and so many early luminaries of Islam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to meet with uh, the great aunt of this ummah, um, you know, who, who bore uh, the scholar of this ummah, Abdullah ibn Abbas, and gave us so much through her children. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward her for all of her sacrifices and all of those sabiqun al-awwalun. Allahumma ameen. InshaAllah ta'ala, I will see you all next week. Jazakumullah khairan wa assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.